We're going to go ahead and start. Uh, go ahead and please take a seat. Uh, first, we want to say thank you for attending our class, and thank you mm -hmm. for all the kind comments Chris and I have gotten this week. Uh, in fact, we've been a little bit surprised at the level of interest in this class, and uh, that encourages us. Mm -hmm. So we're grateful. Uh, we promised that we would have some question time. Uh, we're going to do our best to finish at 915 and knowing how two preachers can expound, we're going to have to hurry, but we're going to try to do that. Amen. So we're going to prep you now to be thinking of a question you might have. My only request is this. Uh, think of a question that would bless the entire group, something that's big enough to bless all. If it's a very specific question about your church or your situation, either email it to us or uh, I'll stick around a little bit. Chris has to leave and catch a fly, but I'll stick around. You can come and ask me. But uh, think of questions that you think are broad enough that they would bless uh, a lot of different churches and a lot of different situations. So uh, the first day we shared four key convictions that we think are critical to creating an evangelist climate. Questions that you have to wrestle with and decide. Uh, questions like, uh, have we lost the theology of the lost? Are there, in fact, eternal consequences to not accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have we uh, decided Jesus is... A way, or is he actually the way? Um, have we come up with a theology of blessing our community and a, a theology of justice that divorces the gospel or, or the message of good news? Have we come up with an idea of justice that doesn't connect to evangelism? As Chris has said so well, you need words. Uh, Francis of Assisi, first off, we don't know if he actually said, preach the gospel wherever you go, if necessary, new words. We do know he had a preaching school. He taught people to preach. So we're advocating the power of words. And then finally, um, are we more concerned about what we're going to lose or what others are going to gain? Uh, yesterday we talked about just uh, some things we must do in the assembly, we think, to create an evangelical culture. Uh, and then today we want to talk some about the importance leaders play in the creating an evangelical culture. However, we didn't have time here, so we promised we would talk for just a moment about the music question. Uh, our church has had instrumental services for 12 years, I think yours for 17, 17. years. So uh, we understand for some of you this might be a little bit of an awkward question. Uh, and we want to say up front, we're not bringing an agenda here. Uh, but one of my values is mission trumps tradition. And for me, our position as a fellowship on a cappella music is a tradition. It, it's, it can't be supported in the text. And that's my personal conviction. I've taught on that. If you want to hear what I've taught on that, go to our website. I've got some lessons called the Both and Church. And you can, you can listen to and you can critique and decide if you agree with my position. But because that is my position, I, I couldn't wrestle any longer with the dissonance of I am giving primacy to a tradition that in my judgment had become an obstacle to bringing more people to Christ. A turning point for me was one time I'm driving to church and in the back of the minivan is my 16-year-old daughter and my 17-year-old niece. And we were listening to a Christian song on the radio and they were commenting on how much they liked that song. And my niece, and they didn't know I was listening, said to my daughter, you know, when I... Uh, leave uh, high school and go to college, I'm going to go to church with music like that. And my daughter said back to my niece, I am too. And I just remember thinking suddenly, why am I preaching at a church my children are not going to come to when they leave home? 
And, and that was a moment for me, a deal breaker for me. Now, again, I understand either A, you don't agree with that conviction, or B, even if you do, you're at a church where you can't do that. And, and so uh, if you are in a church that's going to use a cappella music as your primary worship style, uh, we're going to argue then uh, make it as accessible as it can be to lost people. You got some thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, one thing I want to emphasize is, you know, he said they've been a both-and church for 12 years. We've been a both-and church for 17 years. Um, and one of the things I want to emphasize uh, just on the instrumental end is it, that has to be a mission-driven matter if you attempt it. Because the reality is anytime you attempt to do something new in the life of your church, it, anytime, uh, before you do it well, you do it poorly. And so in order to survive the phase of doing it poorly, you have to be very clear on, here's why we're attempting this over and over and over and over. By the way, when it comes to any kind of change we make in our churches, it's very important that the leadership uh, get together and understand not just why we're doing it over and over, because people will find a thousand different ways to, obey, to, to oppose a change that they don't understand the why for. Okay. So that's, that's a huge thing. But even more than that, you have to figure out what is going to be our language that we can all be on message behind any change we make. Mm -hmm. When people ask us in the lobby, when people email us, when people have conversations with us, what are we going to say? And we tried to use the same language behind every change we made in our church. And we've, we've, we've had to learn this over time because it's a 117-year-old, 112-year-old church. And so there's a lot of changes we've made. So a lot of your energy is spent figuring out, uh, understanding our why, and then understanding what is our language that we're using? What are our sentences we're using? We want to all speak the same language for why we're doing this. Um, uh, because again, any change you make, you're going to first do poorly before you do well. Um, second of all, I would say this, that um, on the, uh, the acapella end, uh, I would find that if you're going to do that, I think things like bringing the energy is very important. Mm -hmm. um, I also, in my experience with de-churched people, unchurched people, lost people visiting our church, um, if you're going to have times of silence in your services, I think that's very powerful. People need to be told what to do with the silence or how to engage with the silence, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, uh, a lot of times in our services that are so poorly planned or we haven't thought through them enough, there are stretches of awkward silence where nobody knows what to do, and we haven't given a lot of instruction for what to do with it, if that makes some sense. Um, so uh, that has a lot to do with your rhythm and your pacing in your time of praise and worship, acapella-wise. I think praise teams can be very helpful because it's an opportunity for people to see, hey, there are people like me here in this church. Remember my question yesterday? People asking, how do you see your, the experience through, through uh, their eyes? What, what am I seeing? What am I hearing? What am I experiencing? Uh, and so that can be very important. Let me say one more thing about on the worship end. I am not a worship minister, nor is Rick, nor do we claim to be one. Um, but uh, we do listen to people. Uh, and one of the things we've found is that in high attendance times like Christmas or Easter, for instance, our Easter services the last four years we've averaged a 55% increase in attendance on Easter over the rest of the year. 
which tells you that still in our culture in the South, people will go to church at Easter. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've really tried to do is make sure that our, all of our songs, believe it or not, we even use some traditional hymns even in our instrumental services because that's not the time to teach new songs at Christmas and Easter. No. Because people who are coming to church, they still remember Amazing Grace. They, there are, and, and you want participation, in my experience, in, 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 and so that a, an unchurched person or a de-churched person, that's a song they recognize. You will find them mouthing the words with it. Um, and so we, in the heritage of the Church of Christ, have always talked about congregational participation in worship. The irony is sometimes we think at Christmas and Easter, hey, we want to be relevant, teach a new song. Actually, that distances you from the people, and they're left being voyeurs and watchers of the whole service because they're already having to listen to a sermon. Does that make some sense? Um, and so thinking through, actually, Easter and Christmas may be your times to do your more common hymns and songs that everybody can enter into well and sing with a great deal of volume, almost a second nature. That's my word on that. Hey, let me add, I should have said this to you. We said yesterday, churches all over America have bands that are dying. Yeah. Okay. The problem I'm seeing with a lot of our churches, especially that are calling us about starting instrumental services, they're making that the end. It cannot be the end. It's got to be a means to an end. If you don't have a church that's had a burden for lost people, don't even bother going there. Same thing, by the way, on the gender question. I see a lot of our churches right now dealing with the gender question, which is a great question, and I support the theology. My problem often is that the question is being asked for the wrong reason. It's still being asked, so are insiders going to, who in the inside is going to have church the way they want it? We're not asking the question from the perspective of how is it going to help us reach the outside. So always let these questions be driven by mission. And one more thing, if you're going to remain an a cappella church, Equip your leaders for a cogent answer why. Because if lost people start attending, they are going to ask you. And I was having that conversation with guests every single week. And so get into the same page as a leadership of why you worship the way you worship so there's not confusion there. Okay? Let's, uh, let, let's, uh, let, let's move forward a little bit and talk about how can leaders improve the evangelistic climate in, in the church. Now, this is zooming out of the assembly because you've got 168 hours in your week, right? We've just talked about the one hour in the week yesterday. Um, so how can leaders help improve the evangelistic climate in the church quickly? I think the first thing is um, it begins with a confession. In our own experience at the branch, we have had seasons where we have confessed, you know what? We are not an evangelistic church. We have not loved the lost like we should. And we say it to ourselves, and we admit it, and we start there. You go through seasons in a church where your heart wanes, and your heart needs to be stirred again. And part of, the def part of being a leader is defining reality. Mm -hmm. And there are times when we confess, you know what, we have... We have not had a burden for the lost, and it, it has become apparent the last few years by what we agonize over, by what we fight about, uh, by the fruit. And there have times where we've had to look at ourselves and say that as leaders in a room on an elder retreat, on a staff retreat. There have been times when we have confessed this publicly, and uh, we've asked the Lord to begin to stir our hearts again. So I think it does begin with a confession, which okay. leads to... 
Yeah, and uh, the second thing we would say as leadership is we have to make prayer, uh, we have to return prayer to our strategy for reaching lost people. Um, how much are we praying about evangelism in our churches? And so uh, we'd say that in a couple of ways. Number one, I would really encourage you to get your people to start praying for their lost friends. Come up with strategies for ways that we can do that. Some things we've done, we've literally taken names in our city and given every member of our church four or five hundred names, and we've prayed for every person in our city and then sent them a postcard. We've tried that. Uh, on a pretty regular basis, we have people turn in cards. And I just put the name of your one on a card and give it to me. And I promise you, I will pray for every person by name. And I may get three or 4,000 cards. How do you pray for that many people? You take a couple of days and that's what you do. And you just pray over every single card. And then you give them to your elders and other leaders and you pray over these cards. We've taken those cards before and we've put them up uh, off the ceiling in our church. And whenever one of those cards uh, is, comes to Christ, we put a red filter over it. So you see all these white cards, and you see these red places over and over. And it's just a visual reminder to our church that we're praying for and we're seeing the lost come to Christ. So, so uh, we pray specifically for the lost. And, and you've heard me say yesterday, we have a phrase in our church, tell your one. So I'm constantly using that language. Remember your one. Invite your one. This is an important time to be praying for your one. And, and so we don't just pray generically for the lost, but I try to help my people identify and focus very specifically, who's that one that God has intersected in your life that you need to be focused on in prayer? So pray for lost people, but then pray for yourselves. You know, Jesus uh, said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. That is a direct prayer request from Jesus to us. Jesus told us specifically, I want you to pray about this. I want you, the harvest is ready. The harvest is full. God's already in the harvest. I want you to be praying for people to go out there into that harvest. So we need to obey Jesus, be faithful. And then there are many prayers in the scriptures themselves that we can be praying that relate directly to evangelism. Romans 15, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from my unbelievers in Judea, that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. So, first thing, we should be praying for people out in the mission field. Our people need to know who our missionaries are, and we need to be praying for them on a regular basis for their protection and for their effectiveness in sharing the gospel. Uh, Colossians 4, 3 and 4, Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in change. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So Paul is saying you need to be praying that God-created opportunities will happen for me to share Christ. And then when those opportunities happen, you need to be praying that I can share that gospel with clarity and with conviction. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. Pray for me also that I may, whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known 
the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So once again, what's Paul doing? He's asking for people to pray for him. Praying that he'll be bold in sharing the gospel, that he'll be courageous. 2 Thessalonians 3.1 Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. So you see there that Paul is, in almost every letter, asking for people to pray evangelistic prayers. Asking for God-created opportunities. Asking for conviction. Asking for clarity. Asking for courage for the gospel. Asking for the word to spread. Every one of you in here that preaches the gospel like we do know that all we bring up on Sunday are loaves and fishes. That's all we bring. And we, if it's going to multiply, God's going to have to show up and do something with it. And so we pray for that. And so I ask my people to pray for me boldly. Every month I send to the elders uh, a prayer request list for me of things I need them to be praying for me so that I can be effective in the proclamation of the gospel in our context. And then when I pray, and I pray at almost every sermon, I am very bold and upfront about praying for lost people. I pray at almost every sermon that a lost person will respond to the gospel today because of what they've heard. Mm -hmm. I pray that God would trust us by sending hundreds and thousands of people far from God to us to hear the gospel. People know what leaders care about when they hear what they pray about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So is in your church, are people hearing prayers that have Mm -hmm. an evangelistic focus? Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that is absolutely critical. And leaders, it is the leaders that set that tone mm-hmm. and create that environment. You know, um, that. Well, yeah, I do. I was thinking one more pat- verse. I was thinking Acts 16 and 14, and the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. And so um, one of the things that we do, we've done in the past prior to Easter and Christmas is, and I will be happy to send you a sample of this, a digital sample of this. My email address is cseedman at thebranch.org. Uh, we produce these seven-day cards. It's on a bookmark. We can even do it digitally where we give our people a different prayer to pray every day evangelistically. It's a scripture. It's, a, it's praying a particular scripture. Acts 16, 14, the opening of the heart. Uh, Colossians 4, uh, an open opportunity. Ephesians 6, praying for clarity. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, praying that the, the message might be honored in somebody's heart. And so the church has these bookmarks they're carrying around with them and we're united in praying this particular prayer this day over, over our one. Sometimes in our services, we'll say, okay, I want, to, I want us to take a moment, and I just want to allow the, the, I want you to allow the image, the face of a person you would like to see respond to the gospel of Jesus to rise to your mind right now. Everybody gets a face in their mind. We all do it. And then we just pray for a moment. There's, all, there's so many different kinds of things we can do, but we really try and marshal the prayer energy of our church going into Christmas and Easter to have an evangelistic mindset. And they're praying these prayers, that many of them that Rick's just mentioned, we give them tools to do that. Um, so I, and let me tell you what, there's a Lord of the harvest. The problem isn't that the harvest isn't plentiful. Yeah. There is a Lord of the harvest, and God wants nothing more than for people to become alert and respond to His Son. I mean, we're praying right in line with this will. That leads right uh, next to the third thing we would say behind confession and prayer, uh, the importance of the personal example of the leader and accountability. Um, 
uh, in my own life, we've lived in the same house, I think I told you, for 18 years in the same community in Coppell. I really experienced no evangelistic fruit in my life personally, in my community, until about year nine. And part of that was, uh, was just it took me time to establish myself and my community. Uh, part of it was we're in a metropolitan area and we have members all over Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so I, in many ways, I, I wasn't very focused on where I live because I was busy. I was everywhere but where I live. And after about nine years, I just decided, you know what, I'm going to get serious about where I live. And I began to talk to the men at my gym. I began to pray some of these prayers. I began to meet the men through Coppell Youth Football. I began to meet people through the public high school that my boys were going to. And over time, something began to happen. One day, I talked to a couple guys. I said, hey, would you be interested in reading through a gospel with me? The gospel of Mark. I met at the gym. They, and they knew what I did for a living. They called me pastor, but they were, did not go to church anywhere. They were far from the Lord. They said, yeah, we'll do that. We've always wanted to read through a gospel. People are very interested, by the way, in Jesus. They're not interested in our church always, but they're interested in Jesus. And so I, I rented a room at a recreation center in Coppell. And I said, why don't you invite your buds and I'll provide coffee. Before I knew it, by the, by, within four months, had seven men on my hands. After one year, I had 35 men on my hands. We did the Gospel of Mark. Then we do Tim Keller's The Reason for God. Then we do the Gospel of John. Then we do John Ortberg's Faith and Doubt. And, and, and before you know it, and now it's about 20. We've had some men move away. This has been going on about four years now. Out of that, nine men, nine men have come to the Lord. Amen. And, and almost all of these men now bring their families with them to the branch. This was not instant. And this was not overnight. Okay? But I'm telling you, it's amazing. So as I tell these stories to the church, the church knows, wow, he's walking this out too. Now, some people would say, well, he's got an advantage. He's a pastor. Uh-uh-uh. The most, sometimes you tell people you're a preacher or a minister. They find out you're a pastor. That's what they say. They, their defense shields are up. And so a lot of times you're just waiting around for a while until, unfortunately, something happens in their life. And when something happens in their life that's tragic or that involves suffering, guess who they want to talk to? The guy on the treadmill there, suffering himself on the treadmill. But they don't. <laughs> And that, that's how this happens. So a lot of times you're just sowing seeds and you're waiting. And, and then something happens and now they want to talk and then things begin to open up. So, but over time, as they now begin to tell these stories, the people in the church realize, wow, he's familiar with this too. You know, he knows this journey too. He's living into this too. He's smoking what he's selling. Mm-hmm. Because there are sometimes people in the pews that think the preacher's just saying that because he wants the church to grow. Mm-hmm. And they need to know, no, this is core to who his burden, this is his burden. And he's in this with us. And by the way, he makes mistakes with us. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I tell stories of fails. Sometimes it's not really a fail. God will do something with it later, but it's a fail in the moment. So the importance of that, let me tell you one more thing about accountability. A couple years ago, we said uh, our executive team staff meeting, we have eight or nine that sit, serve in an executive team role. Uh, uh, and we just decided going into the year, before our meeting, we're going to answer three questions every Tuesday morning when we meet at 9 o'clock. Here are the three questions. How have you seen the kingdom of God in the last week? 
Every one of us had to bear witness in some way. Second question was, who did you invite to church? That's not the same as sharing the gospel. I understand it, but it's a step, right? Third question, did you have some kind of faith-sharing experience with someone else? I want to tell you what, every week for 52 weeks, or well, we didn't meet some week, every week for probably 45 weeks, we all had to face the uncomfortable way of starting that meeting every Tuesday. As leaders, we had to answer three questions. How have you seen the kingdom of God? Who did you invite to church this past week? You know what's amazing? It was so embarrassing when some weeks we'd sit down as leaders and and most of us would say, I didn't invite anybody to church this past week. And we are the leaders. Or if you didn't have a story about, I didn't have a faith sharing experience with somebody this week. And so honesty was required. You know what? That was good for us. Because if we're not willing to do it as leaders, if we don't have stories as leaders, why should we expect anybody else? By the way, that has nothing to do with music and bands and 75-minute services and whether or not you can the meet and greet time. It's amazing the disaster I started yesterday there. Uh, <laughs> this is about lifestyle stuff. Mm-hmm. It's about lifestyle stuff. So, so confession yeah. and accountability is huge among leaders. That's so good. And, and it makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? And I can almost hear, hey, I don't want to be at a legalistic church. Is this legalism? Uh, we're not into growth. We're into health. What one of your child hadn't grown for three or four years, and you're okay with that, okay? Health produces growth. The question we ought to be asking for our churches is not how do we make our churches grow. Probably the better question is why aren't our churches growing? Because healthy things grow. If the life of Christ is in something, it grows. And so I, I get frustrated by people when we talk about evangelism. Well, you're just into numbers. Well, yes and no. I mean, there is a book in the Bible called Numbers. Count how many times in Acts the numbers of people that were saved gets noted. Every number is a person. Mm-hmm. And so I think what we need to hear is if we as leaders aren't burdened for people far from God, we're fooling ourselves that it's going to somehow show up in our church. Mm-hmm. And the way they know is through personal stories that, of what we are doing. Now, I don't have his evangelistic gift, but I am intentional about looking for opportunities with the guy who brings me my pizza comes to my church, or the guy that at the convenience store I buy my Diet Coke from every day is coming to my church. Because mm-hmm. these are people that my life intersects with, and they're going to know what I care about most. Tom lives up the street from me, and Tom is a retired electrician. And I didn't bring Tom to church. I didn't know him. But I met Tom at church, and we found out we were neighbors, so immediately we stuck up a conversation. And so uh, Tom's 60-something years old last February, uh, he was baptized into Christ, and I yeah. see him every out, the, out there in his flip-flops and his Hawaii shirt doing this each week. He walked yeah. up to me about a month ago and said, what's that shirt you wear? I said, well, a medium, why? Oh, nothing. That sucker went to the Masters. He came down to my house last week and gave me a brand-new golf shirt from Augusta. Glory to God. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and and uh, Galatians said, six. Yeah. If you receive instruction, you should share all good things with your teacher. There you go. <laughs> he gave me that shirt, and I said, "Tom, thank you so much for this shirt." Now this sounds like a preacher story, but I'm not. His tears 
welled up in his eyes. He said, thank you for bringing me to Jesus. And so when people hear me tell stories like that, they know I care about this. And it's not because I want a big church, but I serve a big God with a big mission, and I'm sold out to it. Okay? So personal accountability. Uh, let's talk quickly. Again, as leadership, if we want an evangelistic culture, we need to hire and budget for evangelism. You may not have the gift of evangelism. Who on your staff does? Who in your leadership is an evangelist? And if you don't have that person on your staff, you've already said a lot. Why don't you have that person? We've got that person on our staff. His name is David. David, uh, uh, unchurched guy, married uh, oh, to a woman, uh, and they started coming to our church. He'd sit at the back, and he hated it, and he kept coming because God kept calling. So when David, who owned the Ani business, came to Christ, he didn't know any better. He thought, well, everyone needs out here. So he just started telling everybody at his work, you need to come to Christ. And he started baptizing people right and left. This guy has the gift of evangelism. If this guy sneezes, somebody accepts Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. And so eventually we convinced David, uh, who, by the way, was going online at night taking apologetics courses to help him answer questions of people he wanted to bring to Christ. So, so he said, w- w- we brought David on staff. And let me tell you, he's been such a blessing. And here's why. He is a pain in the rear. And you need that person at your church leadership level who is a pain in the rear about evangelism. So we'll have a youth retreat, and we'll be so happy. We had 300 teenagers go on a youth retreat. And Dave will say, did anybody come to Christ? Or we'll have a vacation Bible school, you know, and we'll have, we'll have, oh, we had a thousand visitors come to vacation Bible school. And Dave will say, yeah, but who are we following up with so they'll come to Christ? He is there constantly, pain in the rear. Every time we want to celebrate something, he's going to pull us back and say, is anybody coming to Christ? So you need somebody in your leadership with an evangelistic gift who's going to constantly hold your feet to fire. Are we bringing people to Christ? And then you need a budget for this. I mean, let's be honest. What we pray about and what we spend money on, that's what we care about. In your budget, look through it. In terms of local evangelism, what are you spending money on to help bring people to Christ? Uh, and so that's pretty simple, but it's pretty, uh, I think, uh, abs- critical. Or have you hired and have you budgeted for local evangelism? You want to add some of that? Uh, no, I think let, let's keep our pace up. Uh, that is connected to the next one. Let's go ahead and keep rolling. Well, the same thing. If we're going to become more evangelistic, let's be around people who are, and let's study and read. Your presence here is an affirmation that you care. You wouldn't be here if you didn't want to find some resources about evangelism. So I think one thing we have to do as leaders intentionally is we have to grow in our understanding uh, and resources. So are you reading books about evangelism? Are you listening to podcasts of pastors who are actually reaching lost people? Uh, are you visiting churches that are successful in evangelism? I took some of my leadership uh, a few couple of years ago to Central Christian Church in uh, Las Vegas, Judd Wilhite, mm-hmm. where they have reached thousands of people for Christ. And then we went and we met with Chuck Boer here in South California and his church. 
Uh, and here's a strange thing. They, they, they both have very different strategies. They don't have the same evangelic strategy. But they are absolutely sold out to bringing people to Christ. And by the way, I think that's important to say there's not one way to do it. But have a way. I, I love that old story. Someone came up to Dwight Moody one time and said, I don't like the way you bring people to Christ. He said, I don't either. How do you do it? And I said, I don't do it. He said, well, I like the way I do it, but in a way you don't do it. So, so it's important that you have an actual intentional focused strategy. How are we going to try to bring people to Christ? So, so go visit churches that are doing it and learn from them and put yourself in a posture of humility and recognize we haven't got it figured out. Some people might be further down the road than we are. And so let's listen, let's read, let's go to conferences, let's visit evangelist churches, let's bring evangelists in to talk to our staff. Let's put ourselves in the humble posture of learning more about evangelism, just like you're doing right now. I think, and, and one of the things that I would emphasize is there, have been, there are plenty of times when we are in the seats where you are, and we're asking questions and we're processing. There is so much we have to learn in greater Christendom in the body of Christ. There's so much we have to learn when it comes to this because churches are like fingerprints. There are so many different kinds and so many different ways but it is marvelous to be exposed to learn and, and to, uh, to discern who's doing what and why and to glean from it and be inspired by it. Uh, I can't tell you enough about how much that has taught me to be in that position, so I appreciate you emphasizing that. Uh, uh, another thing we would suggest doing, and again, this makes some people under, uncomfortable, but I think we need to measure evangelistic fruit. We need to have a way to discern, are we being more effective in evangelism? Uh, what we measure, again, is an indication of what we care about. I guarantee you, you're counting the offering. <laughs> what we measure is what we care about. So, uh, I would tell you to measure evangelistic fruit. Obviously, I would talk, that means baptisms. Uh, you, need to be, you need to be keeping track of that. But, but, but more than that, um, this is hard. But we need, as leaders, to be courageous enough to assess and discern, are we doing what we're doing because it's effective toward our mission or just because we've always done it and it's time to do it again? I don't go anymore to churches to do a gospel meeting just because every spring we have a gospel meeting that nobody has prayed about and nobody has invited anybody to. Okay, but I'm talking about even more sacred cows. Vacation Bible School. Women's or men's conference. How about this? Youth mission trips. Where you spend a whole lot of money to send the kids a thousand miles away to paint a school. And in the whole trip, they never have one single conversation with one single person far from Christ. And then we come back and we, we applaud our kids for being on mission. Where was the fruit? Now, this is hard, but this is what leaders do. As Chris said well at the very start, the first task of leadership is to ruthlessly assess reality. This is what we really are, and this is where we're really at. Okay? And so I think one of the things that we're going to have to do, and it's going to make us uncomfortable, we're going to have to... Uh, Measure evangelistic fruit. 
And that's why it's so important to have someone on your staff who is a pain in the rear. Because that's what he's constantly going to be asking you to do. And this is, this is a messy conversation because I, I think we're all familiar with, in one sense, the fruit of the Spirit working in somebody's life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. How do you numerically quantify that? You can't almost. This, it's ter- testimony, it's narrative, it's a struggle. Um, and so this is a struggle to evaluate, but you can evaluate have we had anybody make decisions, a concrete decision to follow Jesus in the last 12 months in our local church culture? Um, we try and evaluate uh, in many ways how many of the people that have made first-time decisions to follow Christ are children from within our church that absolutely should be celebrated, praise be to God. But also we're evaluating how many people from outside of our church have come to Jesus and this is their first community of faith This is their first profession of faith in our context. And then we try and figure out what brought you around, what awakened you, uh, so that we could learn more about ourselves. Because sometimes the way you learn about what you do well is by asking the people who are being reached and touched. And sometimes it's not what you think. Sometimes you think it's this, and they'll say it's that, if that makes some sense. I'm mindful of something Tom Rainier says, who's a Southern Baptist fellow uh, in in terms of evangelism. He's the only person I've heard say this, but he says that a church, this is just his conjecture statistically, a church that is somewhat healthy evangelistically is probably having one conversion for every 20 members. That was his deal. And I thought that was a bold statement, but he was trying to give you something to shoot for. And I thought, when I think about the adults that have come to Christ in our culture and how much energy it takes to help them when they come to Christ and then begin to unravel their life and mess and how long this takes, it's a team effort. Because, I mean, some people, when we, we, there's a few people that have come out of Islam in our culture, a few people have come uh, that they, they were, uh, uh, they grew up in the Jewish faith that it was a radical game changer for them to follow Jesus. They paid a tremendous price. Then there are other people that had to stop their particular line of work. They were in a questionable line of work. And then we helped them financially for a year. So it's very labor-intensive sometimes helping people. So that makes some sense to me, one for every 20, because a lot of people are involved here. Uh, So if you're a church of 100, what if you just... What if you prayed, Lord, we, pray, we ask for the grace of five people to come to your son in our context in the coming year? You may think, five? Wow, yeah, that's one for every 20 in a church of 100. That'd be, I'm telling you, don't sell yourself short for what two or three can do a church of 100 who become awake to the Lord. Yeah. Every soul's precious. But I think uh, me, that's all in this category. One here. real quick thing. I'm going to give you an example from our context. So we have a men's conference every year. And usually have a couple of thousand men show up, and it's a powerful, powerful thing. But several years ago, we were, we were, we were reflecting. Was that an effective conference? Well, of course it was. Cause we had 2,000 men show up, and the singing was awesome, and we sold a lot of books, and everybody was happy, and we ate a lot of barbecue. Okay? Well, if that's how you measure effectiveness, it was a great conference. But then we stepped back and said, where was our gospel moment? We told men to be better dads, and we told them not to look at porn. But where was our gospel moment for lost men? And what avenue did we create for a man to move closer to Christ? And when we stepped back and looked at it through that lens, we decided that wasn't nearly as good a conference as we thought it was. 
So, we, so some of the things I'm saying, we don't have to stop, but maybe we need to tweak or rethink. I mm -hmm. wanted to say that. Now let's talk about a little bit about helping our own people share their faith. Yeah, on the, on the, uh, that, that'd be another suggestion. Help our people articulate their testimony or even discover their testimony. Um, all a testimony is, it's Mark 5 and verse 20, uh, telling someone how much the Lord has done for you or what a difference a relationship with Jesus has made in your life. 1 John 1 and verse 1, that which we've seen, heard, felt, touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And sometimes that takes some work where we help our own people discover their testimony. Um, two, let me give you two questions. If you're just working with members in your church, just to get them thinking, what has God saved you from? Mm -hmm. I'm not talking sin, I'm talking be particular, you know. Okay, here's another question to get to that. If you're working with a longtime believer, helping them freshen up their testimony, what is God saving you from? Because there's stuff that He's even delivering you from right now. You're changing. You're growing. Amen? I mean, I've, I've got stuff on God dealing with pornography in my life when I was a younger man, but I've also got stuff on God delivering me and making a difference in finding my identity through what others think of me. Boy, that, there's, all, there's different layers of testimony somebody can share. So what has God saved you from? What is God saving you from? And uh, Rick, I believe you guys do an equipping class yeah. several times a year that just helps people kind of find their testimony that they can share. Right. So we, we do, and uh, like I said, I'm going to at least every two to three years, I'm going to do a very specific series where I'm going to talk about the importance of reaching people. So from that standpoint, I'm going to equip people. But then at least two or three times a year, we're going to offer an equipping class. It's usually about four weeks, and David mm -hmm. or some of our people teach it. And we just invite people to come and get better trained and equipped at sharing their faith. Again, what you're teaching your people to do tells them what you care about. I had an old, I had a, a old guy that used to deal low-level drugs come to Christ in our culture. And one day he said something to me I'll never forget. He says, the thing I love about you people, talk, and that he's now become a part of, uh, after he said, you guys are smoking what you're selling. And so when you have somebody giving a testimony, here's what a difference a relationship with the Lord has made in my life. It, 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 people know, okay, you're, you're smoking what you're selling. You know, I mean, you are, you really believe in this. This is not just an elevator speech. Uh, this is something that's made a qualitative difference in your life. We've got two more things, and I'm going to do them in three minutes, and then we're going to have some questions. Uh, next suggestion is highlight world missions and mission trips. Okay? Um, let people know who your missionaries are and celebrate wins on the mission field. Uh, and that's not just across the country, but even in the nation. We plant a lot of churches. Our church currently, we're helping 20 church plants. So... If one church has a big launch, I start the message. We just take a second. We show a picture. Hey, can we just celebrate? They've started their, they started, and last week they had 120 people show up for their first Sunday. Uh, or our, our church plant in Colorado Springs is only two years old, and they had 700 people at Easter. Can we just take a moment and celebrate what God is doing in Colorado Springs? What am I doing? First off, I'm celebrating the win, but I'm also keeping in front of the people. We care about success in reaching lost people. So celebrate, highlight, your mission works, and promote and get your people on the mission field. And, and so we're very aggressive here. Uh, I think in the last 10 years, we've had about 1,300 individuals from our church take a short-term mission trip, primarily through uh, a ministry called Let's Start Talking. 
uh, where you read the Gospel of Luke with people uh, who want to practice their English, or uh, through uh, Christian Relief Fund, uh, sending people. Uh, and, and here's what happens is, as you know, someone goes on a two, three-week mission trip overseas. They come back. They come back with a burden they didn't have, and, and it blesses your local work. And, and so, again, what you budget shares what you care about. So we say to anybody in our church, if you'll go on a short-term mission trip, uh, we'll, we'll pay the first $500. Uh, we will, we'll give you the first $500 to get you there because we think it's that important that you have that experience. The last thing we're going to say is um, I think it's important that you pray for and you celebrate other churches' success to create an evangelistic culture. Um, I, I really, I really uh, don't mean this to be critical, but I think it's often true. I learned as a young preacher, the way to identify the largest church of Christ in most towns is to see which the church that was attacked the most. We tend to be suspicious of success in our fellowship, and that needs to stop. And not just among our fellowship. Um, in my city, in Fort Worth, and you think, hey, Fort Worth, that's the Bible Belt, right? On a given weekend, only 21% of my city attends a house of worship. That means if every... Christ-honoring, Bible-believing church, no matter what denomination they're in, if they honor Christ and they preach a word, if every one of them was twice as full next week as they were last week, still over half my city is not close to God. So I, when I drive past a church, and I know that church lifts up Christ and preach a word. We, we may have some disagreements, but they lift up Christ and preach a word. I pray for that church. I pray for their success, and I pray for their growth. I, I forget the preacher's name. He was in London during the time that Spurgeon was just blowing things up. And he admitted he was so resentful and covetous of Spurgeon. And God convicted him of his sin. He started praying for Spurgeon. He started praying for Spurgeon's tabernacle. And he said what happened was Spurgeon was reaching and saving so many people they didn't have room for them all, so they came over to his church and started growing. <laughs> now, I'm really serious about this. If we really, truly have a burden for lost people, we are going to rejoice and we are going to celebrate their salvation no matter where it happens. Okay? So if we want to create that culture, let's start praying for our brothers and sisters in our city and everything they're trying to do to reach people for Christ. Let's do some questions, and then after the questions, I'd like to pray for us all before we yep. dismiss. Can we yeah. do that? Okay. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm really interested in uh, if a preacher actually you convert somebody, what kind of uh, act or what kind of teaching do you give them to help them to be changed? The question is, uh, interest in what kind of procedure or strategy after somebody comes to Christ do we adopt in order to help retain them and grow them? Okay, so um, that's a great question, and we do not in any way want to think that the baptistry is the end. The baptistry is the launch of their journey in Christ. Our mission is to make and grow followers of Jesus. So, so we don't just start with that decision. We, we don't want just decisions. We want disciples. So it's a great question. There's not a one way to do it. Here's what we do. Um, so... David has trained a, a, a number of men and women in our church to teach a year-long discipling course for our new Christians. And so, for example, he trained uh, a number of women, including my wife. And so now my wife now has trained five other women. 
And so we have an army of about 100 men and about 100 women. And as soon as someone comes to Christ, they are, they're asked or assigned to one of these people. And, and the request is, we would like to walk with you the first year of your life in Christ, and these are some of the things that we would like to teach you about walking in Christ. Does it work perfectly? No. No, it doesn't, because sometimes the people don't respond. Sometimes, uh, I'm not saying it's a perfect plan. It's what we're doing. I would kind of respond uh, like Moody. Uh, I like what we're doing better than what you're not doing, but I, if you have a better way to do it, please let us know. But we do have an intentional plan. We give every single adult uh, new Christian in our church the opportunity to pair up with a mature Christian for one year to uh, walk through some curriculum we've developed to grow them as disciples. That's, uh, we have one class called Foundations um, that, it, that is basically, for lack of a better term, it's a, it's a class for a brief period of time. But our biggest priority is if they're not getting them engaged with a small group that lives within five minutes of where they live. Uh, our small groups are geocentrically based, so we develop our small groups with the priority of, if you come into the life of our church, we're helping you get connected to a small group that's within five minutes of where you live, because we want you in community with the people that you're living around uh, in the life of our church. And so, and again, it's not perfect, but. And one of the very first things we teach newly baptized people is who's your one? Because our most evangelical people in our church are brand new Christians. And almost always, if when we have a baptism weekend, I'm baptizing somebody, and then six months later, I'm baptizing their husband, their wife, uh, their nephew, their niece. We had a, a young black teenage boy that we baptized in baptism weekend two weekends ago, two years ago, and he was in our baptistry last week with the ninth member of his family that he's brought to Christ. Mm -hmm. And so, one mm -hmm. of the very first things we teach new Christians mm -hmm. is. Okay, who are you going to share with? Who who are you going to tell what's happened to you too? And that's so important. Other question? Yes, sir. Right. Oh, there's no question. Well, we have transportation, uh, people that serve at transportation on both of our campuses that help people who don't have vehicles get to our campuses. That may be the best, best way I can answer that right now. I don't know if you no, have anything I, to say to that in, in, in that regard. It is a, it is a challenge. At, it's absolutely a challenge. That's part of the reason why we've leaned so much weight on our small groups and helping people to find spiritual community with the people who live in their immediate vicinity. Uh, and the best we've been able to do to get them to our main campuses for worship on the weekend is, is through the transportation ministry. Uh, we do not have a homeless ministry, not, not formal. We, uh, we do some partnerships with Austin Street Shelter. Some of our small groups serve down there at some street shelters. So we do, we do that as well. Well, um, it, I, I tell people really quickly, I'm a pastor, you know, uh, and, and uh, I tell them, and, and uh, I'll be honest, uh, our 
our main campus is, is a pretty big campus. It's a pretty big facility. And so we have a huge level in my, in my city of recognition. If I just say, you know that big building across the street from the Sam's and the Walmart on Nature? Oh, yeah, well, I'm the pastor there. And so that's, that's usually how the conversation starts. And I just invite people, you ought to come hear me preach sometime. And, and typically, especially, well, for example, um, I, I just finished a six-week series called Why Talk About Race? And so it was really easy for me, and almost anywhere I bet I'm say, you know what, I'm talking right now about some of the stuff going on in our country about race. You ought to come hear me sometime. Or I'll say, hey, check me out online and see what you think. And, and so I start the conversations typically like that. I just introduce myself. I have that advantage of saying, this is, where I, this is who I am. That's where I preach. And I, I'd love for you to come sometime. And uh, let, let me hop on that, though. There are times when I have conversations with people at the gym um, and, and I go a different route. It's amazing if you see people regularly at a gym in that way or in some kind of context. One question I've asked is, hey, what's preoccupying you these days? It's amazing how people start talking. Um, to even go to a deeper level, I've been with a guy at a gym and, 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 and he, I've asked him that and we've also, I've asked another question. Hey, if I were to ask you what relationship in your life do you spend most of your time thinking about, what would it be? And inevitably, they're going to tell me about their spouse or their kids. Um, I think there are ways to get into conversations, but this is, this is not something I'm asking a stranger, but this isn't something I'm asking people that I've had some level of I'm moving from acquaintance to friendship that opens a door to a conversation about pain points in our life. When people start opening up to you about what stresses them, what brings them heartache, or the relationships that bring them pain, you're going somewhere. Yeah. And, and, if they, and they'll start to trust you. I, uh, I like to play golf, and so if I'm ever paired with someone who, that I don't know, they almost always on the third hole are going to ask me, what do you do for a living? <laughs> and that's when I tell them I'm a pastor. That's usually when they're languaging through an amazing transformation. Yeah, that's right. And then I'll often ask a question like he was. I'll typically either, what have you been worrying about a lot lately? Or sometimes even, you know what? Uh, if you were to go to a church, what's something you'd love to hear a pastor talk about? Because it's just a way to say, you start telling me where your pain is and see if I can speak. I, and I want to say, over and over I've learned this. There are very few people you talk into faith. Where apologetics comes in is after they start being open to God and they do want to have a conversation, they've opened up to you. The very few people you talk into faith, in the early stages, you're really listening them into faith. Where you're listening to them. And, and over time, they realize this person, they won't call it loving me, but they're experiencing you loving them. And they begin to care about what you begin to say as the relationship evolves. Yeah. One of my favorite comments after a round of golf like that is to have them say, I just thought you'd be weird. Oh, yeah. yeah. They think we're weird, and they find out we're actually pretty normal people who play bad golf. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. 
another friend who's never preached. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I went and gave the Holy Spirit that love to this guy who's never preached. Mm-hmm. So, so I love God, and I want to serve God, and I want to reach the lost. But pastors urge patience. Mm-hmm. I call it those who may be to the left of those who are maybe right or center. You understand what I'm saying? I've suffered plenty of Well, first off, you just gave us the next three-day class, okay? <laughs> We're not going to solve that in two minutes. Uh, you give a 60-second response, I'll give a 60-second response. I can tell your heart is burdened. Yeah. I can tell your heart is burdened. And I, 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 I really appreciate your heart and hear your heart. And I, I would say that in my own experience, when people on both ends have been able to see an adult come to Jesus in our context, when they see people standing in the baptistry and hear their story, it's amazing how the patience on both ends begins to be extended. It's a perspective shifter in most cases, not in, not in every case. But for, for us, as when that's happened, it's helped people kind of on both ends remember what's important and given people on both ends a little bit of patience. Um, on the deal of do, do I equate exuberance with with spirituality? That's probably a much longer discussion. Mm-hmm. I would say this: I would much rather cool off a zealot than fire up a corpse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Amen. So. And uh, again, I, I may not have totally understand the question. I'm I'm just too old to have any more right and left conversations. In fact, there's nothing that calm, bugs me more than something. I don't want to be right enough. I want to be in the middle. Where does, when was Jesus ever in the middle? I want to be where Jesus is. And if that puts me on the right or puts me on the left, I don't care. Y'all talk about that. I just want to be where Jesus is. And Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And so much of our problem with our churches, and I'm saying it one more time, we are fighting about who gets to have church their way. We're not fighting for the mission. And our mission has got to trump everything else. The sweetest people in my church are over 70 years old. They have witnessed such change in my church in music, in women, in multi-site, uh, in polity, Amen. over and over. And they've stuck with my church. And they're attending a church that, for the most part, isn't in line with their personal preference because they care more about the mission. And they're seeing people get baptized every week. And that's why they come to my church, not because we're doing church the way they like it. Okay, we've got to go. It's 929. He's got to catch a plane. I want you to say a prayer. Yeah, let, let, let's pray. Let's all be standing again. Let's just pray. Now, I want you right now in your mind, I want you thinking of somebody in your life. Maybe, it's, maybe they're in your family. Maybe they go to church, but they're a long way away from the heart of the Father right now. Um, maybe it's somebody you work with. It could be somebody that's never made a profession in Christ. It could be somebody that has wandered away. I want everybody to think of a person right now to call to mind uh, their face right before your mind. Lord, right now you see hundreds of faces suspended in our spirits and our minds. Some of them are children, parents, ex-husbands, ex-wives, stepchildren. Some of them are people that we've gone to church with for a long time, but they're in the far country right now, and we know it. 
Some of them are our neighbors that we've lived next to for 12 and 15 years, and we see them being eaten alive by invisible flames like we've talked about the last couple of days. Lord, we ask you, the Lord of the harvest, sweep them up. And will you use our words, our love, our actions, our lives to sweep them up? You say in Isaiah 55 that your word will not return to you empty. May your word sweep them up. Your word incarnated even through our life, our love, our sacrifice, our actions, and the actions and love and sacrifices of others around them. Lord, we pray that you would open their heart to respond to the message as you did Lydia's heart in Acts 16. We pray that you would cause them to to honor the message in their heart of hearts according to 2 Thessalonians 3. We pray you would open a door for us to have an opportunity to have a Jesus-centered conversation with them shortly. We pray you would give us the words to articulate it according to Ephesians 6 and that we would articulate it clearly, Lord. Lord, we pray that this time next year some of us will have testimonies of something that happened with this person who's suspended before the imagination of our heart right now, 365 days from now. You are the Lord of the harvest. And by the way, we confess this over our own children and people we're biologically related to that our hearts are broken by right now. You love them more than we do. You have bled for them. You are raised from the dead for them. We enter into your heart for them. And we ask, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know there are no lost people in the realm of heaven. So we pray for things to be on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that your burden would be increasingly imparted to all of us so it's out of the overflow of our heart that we speak and we pray. And in Jesus' name we say this, amen. 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 God bless you. Go in peace.